Hello and welcome to Twig number 210. We have a very special episode today because we have a guest. Uh, our guest is David. I have forgotten your last name. I'm sorry about that. Um, but you can introduce yourself in a second. And we're also here with Eric Kay and Laura T. How's everyone doing? We are all good in the hood. This is David Nelson from King Fame, who is responsible for all the success of Candy Crush, evidently. So we're going to talk about that and King today in, in, uh, in uh, what, 10-year anniversary or something? That's right. Of yeah. uh, Candy Crush. Looking back the last yeah. 10 years in Candy. Sorry, Dave, I, I was a bit fangirling you a little bit, talking about how awesome you were. Yeah, I'm glad it faded out for me, so I didn't have to hear it. Thanks. It's, I got lucky. I was <laughs> we, just a cog, always... man. I'm just a cog. We should have people put. You got to put your last names when you uh, log into the. Yeah, it's my here. fault. So I, it's my fault. <laughs> no, it's your fine. I should have put prints. I could have. I should have looked that up and spent half a second <laughs> preparing. <laughs> no, it's all right. So, uh, tell us about Slush, dude. We all. I missed it. I'm. I'm really kind of bummed out that I missed it, frankly. But uh, how'd it go, dude? Okay, so Slush is. It's over. It's it is it has grown to the point that it has overwhelmed the city of Helsinki, and I am going to declare that I uh, did not enjoy it as much as I have in years past. So I I am like one of the original Slush fanboys. I spoke at Slush in 2013. Um, you know when they would uh, when they were still in a state where they would debase themselves by having someone like me on stage. Um, but back then it was like all gaming and it was like a, it was like pocket gamer basically, or it was like a kind of like a, a lesser GDC. It was all gaming. Right. And it was at a kind of a smaller, uh, you know, venue. Now it's gigantic. It's at the, the big convention center in Helsinki. I don't know. There's some tens of thousands of people come to the city for it. And um, it's just, it's, it's, it's grown to the point where it's like the, if you could, parse out like a broad theme from the conference it's like social uh consciousness right or like uh like uh i don't know like social responsibility it's not tech and so the main stage what? it's like it's like the sort of biggest names in vcs and then it's like the biggest names in vc talking about stuff that's just so high level that it's not really that interesting um and then people talking about climate change uh, you know, social responsibility stuff. And so like you go there and you're like, well, I look at the, I look at the the lineup and the speaker list and it's like, okay, well, it's, it, it's VCs that are going to be speaking so broadly and high level that like, they won't say anything interesting. Or it's like the prince of some European country talking about their commitment to climate change. But it's not like I, I you would not, the content to me is just not a draw at all. And then the, the venues it's, and they, they don't actually do a good job of like supporting side events right so i mean they kind of doing that now there's a bunch of like mini conferences that have, that have popped up they had one called open protocol that was like crypto um they had another one that was more gaming focused uh by the rain group that unfortunately I, didn't, I wasn't able to attend but like throughout the conference you know it's just small parties and you have to be really plugged in to the european ecosystem to get an invite and then when you try to attend the vent like the the restaurants or wherever that they've booked these things at are so small that you're either squished like shoulder to shoulder or you just can't get in. And so I, you know, I had an, invi <laughs> I had an invite to the 32 F party in years past. It's been the best party at slush. I get there and I wasn't that late. I had a happy hour. Mobile dev memo, ha memo happy hour. It was a blowout success, by the way. Great, great event. Thanks to everyone that came. So I had that. I go to the 32 F event, show up. It's a pretty big venue. It's a big facility, but it's on the, on the water. It's on the sea. 
And so the wind is just whipping you in the face. It like, it's like uh, sandpaper on your face. And so you get out of the cab and they're like, okay, well, the coat check's outside. But you have to have gone to coat check and put your coat away before you can wait in line to get in. And I'm like, it's minus two. What are you talking about? So I, <laughs> so we stand in line with no coats on and the line's just not moving. And I was like, all right, I'm done. I can't take more than five minutes of oh, this. Wow. This is a disaster. So I get my coat, go back into town. There was another party I knew about that was uh, at capacity, couldn't get in. Then I go to the karaoke bar that is like the sort of staple of any slush experience. I had to wait in line to get in there. It's just the city of Helsinki is small and it can't accommodate <laughs> that many people. So anyway, I, I, I feel like I didn't have as good of a time as I used to. I met a lot of people and it was pretty productive. And I got to visit my wife's uh, family in Estonia beforehand. But I would say slushes maybe jumped the shark a little bit. It's, oh, it's, no. it's, it's too big. It's too broad. Uh, it's too sort of like vague. Uh, I, if I'm going to a conference, I kind of want it to be a little bit more specific to what I care about. I can say like reporting from slush, though, no one's talking about Web3. Uh, and, uh, and everyone is, is, uh, is, is talking about, you know, down rounds, bridge rounds, uh, especially in mobile games. And, you know, I had people coming up to me that I've like never met like just asking me like without even introducing themselves like what should i do with ua and it's like what hey how are you first of all nice to meet you and second of all i have no idea <laughs> it's like you're on your own crazy oh i'm so disappointed because i really wanted to do slush and it seems like that's not the type of event that i want to be participating because it's not i'd want to be lectured to about climate change that's no fun <laughs> um and freeze my ass off in the in the in the uh, the process helsinki winter that, yeah, yeah. That, um by the way new though because like a lot of the conferences i feel like are, are starting to have that sort of too a little bit too vague no one wants to reveal yeah. too much and then what used to be i remember the gdc talks of like yonder years ago right they were great yeah um and i i think there is a, an absolute opportunity to kind of refresh the conference circuit and either make it well, smaller or have something that you know you can walk away with being like, I learned something and this is something I can apply to my everyday. So GDC, they, they conscientiously used that as a filter for the talks. It was like, how practical is this? Like, I remember when I pitched GDC the first time, they were like, yeah, this is perfect because this is actually like tactical advice. Like, tac you know, um, right. this was this was like helpful information around UA and and. I remember my reviewer uh, was like, this is this is exactly what we're looking for. And I think they they filtered out a lot of the stuff. It's like, you know, how to build games that induce joy. And it's like, no, no one cares. Like, that's too high. That's too broad. It's too vague. Oh, man. <clears throat> so I guess the only update I have is I got a new setup, right? I got a new mic. Sounds great. I got I, I, uh, I got a new keyboard. So people won't keep bitching about the fact that I'm clickety clickety clacketing during the thing. Although Thank God. David says, David says that's my signature now. So I, I've, yeah. I've, I've destroyed my uh, individuality. That's like the only reason that I listen to the podcast is for when you get yelled at about your keyboard. <laughs> that's my favorite. I like mark it my calendar and shit. I'll just go like this. But but hold on. I think what you've done is you've addressed the symptom, but not the root problem. You should not be doing email when we record this. It's one <laughs> week. It's one hour out of your week, man. You can't put the keyboard away. Dude, what are you doing? Dude, fuck off. All right. I got I to multitask, right? I got to multitask. I can't, I can't just sit here and listen to you drone on and on and not do something, right? Um, all right. Moving on. Quick updates. Or anybody else have an update? Miss Laura. 
No updates. Recording from Boston. That is my only update. Jesus. Yeah. Do you ever sit still? For Christ's sake, you just moved. I know. All right. <laughs> This podcast is brought to you by Google for Games. It takes more than a collection of tools to help you bring your gaming vision to life. With cross-platform solutions that give you access to billions of potential players around the world, Google is your partner to create great games, connect with players, and scale your business. Visit g.co slash Google for Games or go to the link in the podcast description below. And if you ask me, Google for Games is the destination to learn more about game solutions and latest research and insights from Google's gaming teams to help you achieve your goals. If you're not driving or working out while listening to this podcast, I really suggest you fire up that browser and check out Google for Games. Want to know how your results stack up against other gaming apps? Well, now you can. Apps Flyer the industry leader in measurement and mobile analytics, just released a new tool providing benchmarks on 21 key growth metrics for over 20 categories in 25 markets for both iOS and Android. And it's available now for free at appsflyer.com benchmarks. Yes, you heard that correctly, completely free. In just one click, you can easily compare installs, retention, revenue, media cost, and much, much more. With these benchmarks, you'll be able to get intel on your competitors, set goals based on insights from the top 10% of mobile games, explore new markets and growth opportunities, inform soft launches, and understand market dynamics and trends so that you can adapt your UA strategy accordingly. Over the past seven years, AppsFlyer's industry data reports, trends, and insights have helped thousands of mobile app marketers to excel at their jobs and grow their apps. Trust them, they know their data. Head to appsflyer.com slash benchmarks now for more info. Okay. Um, these are, this will be really quick. So Pokemon Scarlet and Violet came out. The reviews are mixed. Although the game is good, but the fucking hardware, as I've said, the Switch is just a disaster, right? So it, it can't handle it anymore. So it's like a, it's a, it's a janky mess. Although the game is really good, which is so sad, right? Clearly, we are anticipating a new console next year from Nintendo to alleviate this, these issues. Um, the second one is Netflix is leaning hard into video game ad adaptations. So I think this is interesting is that, you know, HBO has like Last of Us and Fallout um, coming, but uh, Netflix has 15, 15 different gaming related IPs that are coming down the pipe. This includes Dragon Age, Assassin's Creed, Beyond Good and Evil, Bioshock, Castlevania, Devil May Cry, Dragon's Lair, Far Cry, Gears of War, Pokemon, etc., and some Clancy stuff. So, pretty amazing, like uh, how much you know this. When we start talking about, oh my God, what's the word? Transmedia stuff, which was a buzzword like ten years ago, fifteen years ago, it never really kind of materialized. But with the the advent of all these different uh, streaming platforms, I think um, this becomes more of a reality because the risk associated with throwing things on Netflix and Amazon and Net Disney are, are far less than trying to bring something to. Uh, movie theaters. So anyway, it's going to be interesting to see how these kind of further expand potentially the market and just improve uh, the uh, perception or maybe even hurt the perception of some of these franchises, given whatever the quality is. Um, and then I, I just put this out here because 
uh, Blizzard basically isn't completely satisfied with Overwatch 2 rewards, um, and it will it will make them slightly suck slightly less next season. <laughs> so the only reason I bring this up is because this is what we said about the initial, or this is what I said about the initial launch, is that, dude, the Battle Pass was a disaster. It's like, how can you not, how, how is it even possible that you cannot design the Battle Pass and the rewards for the Battle Pass out of the gate Good. You know, it's like clearly this thing has been absolutely rushed and, and Overwatch 2 is not well thought out at all from 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 uh, from uh, oh, what's the expression? Dang it. Bow to Stern, whatever the hell the expression is. This thing was just not well thought out. And um, so they're going to try to fix it with a better battle pass uh, um, in, the, in the next iteration. But by that time, no one's going to be playing this game and no one's going to care. Um, so. Fundamentally, that's all I got. Laura, what do you got? Two quick things. So one, last episode I mentioned a game called Sea of Souls uh, from Landmark Games. I'm so happy it it generated a lot of of, uh, chatter. I just want to clarify one thing. It is a very early concept. And what what I wanted to convey was for an early concept game, it's super interesting. I think a lot of people um, played it, which is great. Um, and I, they were commenting that it just it appears a little unfinished. And I think that's because it is. And um, it reminded me a little bit like when, when we pitch games or there's early games, we have to there's there's a need to kind of see the design through the the, the fundamental design through what it looks like. Um, and that's what I was commenting on more than the whole package because it's it's not done. Um, so quick, quick note on that. And I stand by my I stand by my assessment. I think it's a very compelling concept. Um, and then one other smaller uh, one other a smaller update that I wanted to go through is um, there's a new company and they have an awesome name called Noodle Cat Games. Uh, they just raised four million from Makers Fund. The team is comprised from Epic, Bioware, Popcat, and EA. So they have a great pedigree. And their mission statement is focusing very much on. Um, focusing on employee wellness and caring about the actual people that work on games. Um, one, they're, what they basically said in their mission statement is, while technology makes great strides forward, um, we don't see matching improvements in how we work day to day. I think that's I think that's entirely true. The industry is notorious for demanding immense parental fat sacrifices in order to get a game to the finish line. It's not malicious. There's time pressure, fleeting nature of financial success. Um, and I've seen this grind too many uh, on too many uh, coworkers to mention. So there are one of the things they're offering as an example is a fully remote four day work week. And I think this is it's an interesting time this comes out because we have Elon Musk right now who's you know, t- took over Twitter and there's been articles about how he's asking employees to um, put all, put themselves all in or or leave. And I think that we have now two very different approaches that are obviously both trying to lead to success. Um, I'm not saying that there's one right white way to develop tech or games, um, but I, I'm gonna keep an eye on this to see uh, what kind of games they produce because my my opinion is that uh, putting employee wellness and and putting people as people first as opposed to as resources is the better is the better way. Um, so just quick Quick, uh, I thought that was interesting to share. Um, yeah, I have thoughts on that, but I don't know. <laughs> I'll spare <laughs> everyone my thoughts. Um, okay, I, uh, I'm, 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 I'm citing an article on Pocket Gamer. Uh, Phil Spencer. The title is Phil Spencer says Activision Blizzard deal is primarily about mobile gaming. I'm only bringing this up to make Cress angry. That's what I said when they did the deal. 
I feel vindicated. Um, I'm quoting Phil Spencer. Let me just quote Phil Spencer. Phil Spencer says, I don't think anybody needs that quote from us to understand how irrelevant we are at mobile, right? Anybody who picks up their phone and decides to play a game would see that on their own. All right, Chris, what, what's your comment? Dude, you got to listen to last week. I don't know. I'm not going to relitigate this. This is, this is a press release for getting the deal done. This is not a press release to actually say that they have any strategy on mobile that's meaningful. And certain, certainly Candy Crush is not helping Xbox you know, you know, expand, expand their footprint on mobile with the exception of what Candy Crush is, right? So, uh, no, wrong. <laughs> you're not vindicated on this one. You're just you're you're a victim of their PR. And actually, this was the next update I had. I I had a chance of talking to this really expert PR person uh, yesterday, and uh, and and they were like so like sorry. I'm not, now I'm just self promoting, but they were like so appreciative of the fact that I'm calling out this bullshit that's out there. And the and the point that they made was particularly about this Xbox and this Phil Spencer stuff that I've been talking about and going on and on about for a while is that. And she, she's an OG, like she's been doing this for like 30 years. And she's like, it is unbelievable to me in this day and age, how people pick up these stories and treat them as fact. And these are like real like outlets, you know, like TechCrunch and others like fortune, whatever. They're like picking up these press releases and writing them like their truth, right. Without actually looking at them at all. And the reality is that, that, that was generally like Kotaku and like, you know, you know, terrible outlets like that. Right. But now it's, everybody is doing it. And so. No, these, there's no truth in these these press releases at all. They're all just half truth or lies, all, all, all 100%. So, and the fact that they're trying to compete in mobile, that's bullshit, right? Absolute bullshit. Okay, all right. Um, right. Let me, let me just jump. trying to expand the market definition. Let me, let me jump to my next one. So uh, this is a story, but I think it's that what I picked out of this, the, the tidbit was actually kind of buried. Um, so there's the, the, the article title is Netflix is making a AAA PC game at its new studio. I think this is from today. Um, yeah, yeah. Anyway, they, and it, they, they've surmised this because Netflix posted a, a job listing for a, like a AAA PC game producer. But, uh, and you know, okay, that's, we'll see what happens. That seems, uh, I don't know, that seems inconsistent with the strategy, but maybe the strategy has changed. But what the tidbit I picked out of this was the fact that um, a, uh, that Netflix's adoption of its existing games portfolio has been something like 1% of its user base, right? So they linked, <laughs> Engad- and so this is from Engadget, but they linked to another uh, article. And so I'm, I'm, re- I'm quoting from that. So according to analysis performed by Aptopia, which, you know, these mobile insights companies are not always, you know, super uh, precise. So Take it with a grain of salt. But anyway, there was a report by Aptopia that said this. So according to analysis performed by Aptopia on behalf of CNBC, the streaming giants games have been downloaded a total of 23.3 million times, right? Which is, that's that's poor performance by any standard, given how many titles they've had and how long they've been running this program. An average about 1.7 million daily users. Put another way, less than 1% of Netflix's 221 million customers are taking advantage of the games included in their subscriptions. So there's been pretty weak uptake if the if these numbers are to be trusted. I mean, the games that they're doing are complete tchotchke messes, right? They're not like good games, right? So maybe a AAA game is pro- important. But again, this would be completely contrarian to the whole thesis around what Netflix could be good at. They do not want to compete head-to-head with Microsoft and Sony with AAA shooters. That's ridiculous. Well, but how would that even work on PC? Like if you made it on PC, how would that... How does that connect to the Netflix core service? Yeah. 
Exactly. I mean, it could be a streaming, right? It could be, I guess you know, so. then, yeah, whatever. <laughs> anyway, um, it's, we'll, we'll see. And again, this is like four years away, right? Yeah. They're just starting development now. It's going to take forever for them to actually execute against something. Right. And building a team to do a AAA game, I kept keep getting reminded of the fact that like a lot of times you have to build these teams, build out your first game and fail, right? Because right out of the gate, a team isn't going to be successful necessarily. It takes takes iterations and, and building of, of the team in order to get it right. And so how many times can you fail before, you know, you, know, you wait to your second game to see if you can get any success? So anyway, I don't know. We'll, we'll see how this evolves over time. I still am calling out Jason Mueller for not calling me back because <laughs> he's, he's doing strategy at Netflix. Uh, that guy better call me back eventually. Stop dissing me. Stop I did. Me. So I did speak to... I spoke to a handful of people that were associated with, with Netflix at slush. And, you know, my thesis is always that like they, they have this ads platform. It's their recommendations engine. They can drive a lot of traffic to these titles. What they should do is use the titles to drive traffic into Netflix. Right. That was kind of this article I wrote like six months ago or something. And apparently that is their broader strategy here is to like use, like they need to get a lot more data on how people play these games and, and they need a lot of games to generate that data. And once they have that, they can apply this tech, the recommender, the recommender tech to that in a way that they believe will drive like a lot of usage. Um, and if you notice, they've actually uh, made the games carousel more prominent in the app. They've moved it up quite a bit. Um, so it is like much more visible. But I, I, I buy that. I, I think if you just get a lot of people clicking on these things and then you you're able to because because they're all published by Netflix. Right. So they have they have essentially this content fortress because they can connect everyone to the IDFV on iOS. And so, and also it's, you're, you're logged in because it's, you have to have the, you have to have the, the account to even play the games. So my sense is like, they could build up a lot of data there and then, and then associate that with different types of play or different game mechanics and actually have a pretty um, effective way of driving people into the games. And they just don't have that now because there hasn't been enough uptake, but then you've got a cold start problem. It's like, well, how much are they willing to invest before they get there? And what's that moment? Like, what is that critical mass of data in order to be able to do that? And it's it's probably like a massive investment that you have to just accept. And the question is, like, you know, how much rope are you given? How much how much agency are you given to achieve that? Is it multiple years and billions of dollars or or is there like are you always on the razor's edge? Yeah, I, I've heard very specifically from investors that these guys take a long term approach to this stuff. Um, so I think they're going to they'll be willing to invest. Um over the long term to make this happen. So I, again, I, out of all the things that are happening in the space, Netflix seems to be the most interesting, you know, um, you know, you know, VR, blockchain, um, whatever, you know, obviously Apple Arcade is already dead. So, um, <laughs> you know, it, this seems to be like the most interesting, most potential for innovation in the space, but they can't make AAA shooters. Like this doesn't make sense to compete at the same level as, as Call of Duty. Right. But isn't there another, um, there's another question, I think, which is interesting with the thing you brought up, Laura, about the company starting with the four-day work week and everything. That making a game, like there is a whole, how you make great content for TV shows. I mean, there's a whole industry, right, of like writers coming up through shows. There's an entire structure for becoming a writer. You know, you move to L.A., you start going to these circles. There's a whole thing, right? Um, and games is com completely different. And I'm not sure you land inside of a big company like Netflix, 
and you go like, hey, this, this innovative hub come up with great IP and then you do, you know, I mean, so I think that there's actually maybe a different question in the games industry. How, how are creative projects going to be born? Are they going to be born in the companies like the one that makers just invested in? Or are they going to be born inside of Netflix and, and you know, Microsoft? I mean, is that really where great IP is created? And like, look, I, I think it's going to be tricky. I mean, it's hard to create fresh, great IP in a big company. It's just hard. It's really hard. You're preaching to the choir. Yeah. You're preaching to the <laughs> yeah. choir. Yeah, <laughs> but it's, it's, tech fuckers never get it right. <laughs> no one wants to make games at fucking Google. Mm -hmm. All right. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, I maybe it. that's the whole like they're going to run test it and then they're going to have to buy it someplace else. You know, the IP some, yeah. somewhere else. You know? anyway, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So so the other thing I was going to cover, but I, I just don't know enough about what's going on over there. But uh, Iger is back at Disney mm -hmm. after only what a, a few years, Two years of, I think. of this guy. Yeah. And so part of it's the political thing with in Florida with yeah. whatever that bill thing was. And I don't want to talk about that. But other was it the fact that I think he was trying to like milk every IP for what it, what it was worth. Right. And and I think people felt that he may be damaging some of the brands. Bah, 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 bah. But now Iger's back and now they're talking about this uh, uh, Apple buying Disney. Like, oh, that may be a, like like a rumor that 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 Apple maybe Iger may be trying to sell out to, to Apple. Like, Jesus Christ, dude, that's like. That is like absolute Armageddon scenario, right? Like you don't want creative people being <laughs> absorbed by tech people. You don't want that, right? And they don't and anyway, I hope this. I hope to God that doesn't happen. <laughs> but um, it makes the Activision but, deal not not look like a big deal, though. I guess, you know, it's not as yeah. But talk about no, it. No, that's true. It's trivial. Mm -hmm. But <laughs> could that pass antitrust <laughs> review? I don't think so. Like that seems impossible. Apple Disney. They own the content. Yeah, so Apple owns Disney. They own the hardware and they own the content. I mean like the biggest probably the biggest and most valuable content portfolio that exists. Like that seems like you can't allow those two things to be under one roof. Well, obviously the deal would be all for Apple to get into parks, theme parks. That's like uh -huh, that's, yeah. not, that's <laughs> yeah. the only reason they'd be exactly. interested. Yeah. <laughs> It's like it's a marketing machine for for uh, their phones on the on the parks. I don't care. <laughs> that, that that that's just like bullshit rumor and speculation. Um, okay, uh, moving on to headlines, and then we'll get to the history, <laughs> the ups and downs at the Candy Crush organization. You're going to be just all bull, bulled up on this stuff, aren't you, Mister David? Yeah, whatever right. you want. We're, we're going to bring you down. Good, good. We're going to bring you down. Let's do it. All right. Okay. So the first headline or uh, is uh. uh NetEase and Blizzard get a divorce, I think is the thing. So uh, this is actually a press release, which basically said that Blizzard announced that it will suspend all Blizzard games in China due to expiration of the current licensing agreement with NetEase. This includes, just in, this is important, World of Warcraft, Hearthstone, Warcraft, Overwatch, Heroes of Storm, and Diablo. Okay, Diablo Immortal was a separate agreement um, and not impacted by this, this, uh, this ridiculous ridiculous thing that's going on all right this is a 14-year deal by the way they've been doing this for 14 year old and if you remember they inherited this from the nine which blew it and then and they moved over to uh netties uh and by the way that was not a easy transition just saying uh back in the day um so they are basically going to suspend new sales starting now um of all the different games we just talked about um and then they have the, you know, the company PR spin of that we are immensely grateful and passionate to our Chinese community, blah, 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 nearly 20 years. We're bringing our games, et cetera, et cetera. I'm not even going to talk about that. So what, what's really going on here? Uh, 
first of all, this really sucks for players. Like if you're if you're a player of any of these franchises, you know, like them pulling the plug or even the threat of pulling the plug after the years and years of of, of playing you've done and inve- investing in your character and stuff like this. The fact that this is even a press release about this is is absurd on its surface, right? Um, it's just not good business at all, right? In my opinion, right? Um, so this sucks. Uh, but I think what people don't know is that the publishing deal with NetEase for Blizzard's properties is pretty shitty for Activision, right? The, the, the terms of that deal, and I don't know the specifics, but I've just heard over the years many times, is that they don't make a lot of money off the money they make in China, which is a general theme in life uh, for, for interactive uh, with China in general. But, um, and this has been like a really sore spot for Bobby and, and the powers that be, you know, what's that guy's name, the, the CFO? I Armin. I'm forgetting his name. Armin. Armin. You know, like people like Armin are just up in arms the fact that they don't make any money in China with their, you know, their big IPs, right? Um, so, so I think what's very likely is that Activision was going after better economics. And actually, I, I don't know this for sure, but I heard this from other people and that like the way they think about these things is that they probably just went for more economics or some stupid small little thing that they just, it was their ego got involved or something and to get it to this point, right? There, there, there's no reason that you should ever discontinue service for a game, yeah. period, end of sentence. You come to terms. You have years to negotiate this shit. This isn't like something that happened over the last few months, right? Like they know it's expiring, right? All they have to do is renegotiate. So I imagine it got into some pissing contest between the two, you know, two companies and it was most likely Activision's fault, um, if I were to guess that this is not happening. So what, I, what it looks like though, is that they have some wiggle room for renegotiation. And, and, and it is, I think very likely that they come to some kind of agreement before they shut down the servers right? <laughs> in January. Because the fact is transitioning all these people and players from one system to another is fucking hard, right? And that's not something that they, I think they wanna do. So in that sense, NetEase has a lot of leverage. Um, and then on top of that, who the fuck else is there out there, right? Yeah. Like who else can actually do this, you know, that, that they would want to partner with, right? I, I, I don't, I don't think there's a, like a laundry list of people, you know, maybe Tencent, um, which I don't know if they would want to do it. I don't know. But anyway, I get some thoughts from you guys if you have any. Um, the other thing that's really interesting to me from a game theory type thing is if this, if Activision was still a publicly traded company, like if it wasn't going through this transition transaction, I don't think we would have gotten to this point, right? Because the stock would have gotten destroyed if this deal had happened. Not that it's too material necessarily for Activision. I mean, it's a couple hundred million bucks. I mean, it's significant, like three or 400 million estimated. Um, but they would have gotten destroyed if this agreement went went through. But because they're in this kind of like uh, complete, like um, what's the right word? Purgatory with this deal yeah. that they can kind of negotiate a little bit harder here. Um, but I think ultimately cooler heads will prevail. Uh, something will get done, hopefully before the deadline or shortly after. Um, and and likely, ultimately, it might be a better solution for Activision and less money for NetEase, potentially. But again, this is all just a guess. I have no real information besides like kind of what people have talked about over the years. Uh, so this is all pure rumor, speculation type stuff. Any any thoughts there, guys? Just that it's like a disaster. If I mean, that's an absolute worst case scenario. If you're going to shut the game off. Like that's, that's, you just, that, that, that's like a, 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 a total breakdown in communication between the two parties. And, and to your point, I mean, this is a 14 year deal. Like it's not like they haven't had 
you know, lead time to figure this out. <laughs> and, and actually, if it had anything to do with the government or something, like that would that would actually be a little bit more solace, right? Yeah. It's not like beyond their control, but it doesn't sound like that's what's happening. Right. And, and if anybody does have information about that, I'd, I'd be interested. But like, yeah, dude, this is like just in bad faith negotiations or, you know, uh, people getting their you know egos hurt. Yeah. It feels like anyway at the highest level. So, and and when you have people like Armin in charge, you know what else is going to happen, right? You know, like I, you know, whatever. All right. Um, I have two cents on that. Again, I I no information, no secret information. I don't have any back channels. I I am I am hard pressed to believe that these this is a group of really smart people, really smart, successful people. I just I, I struggle to believe that they all of a sudden were throwing their hands up, flipping the table, deciding that this deal is over. There had to have been some. I, I would I would would not be surprised if they had something up their sleeve because I also can't. Um, wrap my head around the fact that they would just drop the players like that. I mean, maybe maybe it's only about the bottom line, but I I don't know. I feel like they they must have something else coming um, because I just it's hard for me to to picture kind of this group just you know all, the first image that comes to mind is that stupid table flip from Real Housewives, and I just can't picture them at at that same dining room table doing the same thing. It could just be an economic thing. I mean, I have no idea. I don't know anything about this either, just to be like super clear. Don't know anything at all about the economic situation. But it could be that this amount of work that it takes to keep it up or whatever, and then revenues in don't make sense and a conversation needs to be had, you know, and and it could be that the like, you know, one of the two parties or both of them were like, ah, you're not serious about this. Um, and it went this far. But, I mean, that's a reasonable. I mean, it it could be just pure numbers. No, and I, I think you're probably right, but I, I think probably Activision, well, whatever. Anyway, I've already expressed my opinion on those guys. I mean, I would say that um, it is, it's complicated keeping up multiple versions of things. And sometimes something that was easy to set up 10 years ago, and it wasn't a big deal, once you develop some software down the line, becomes something that's like 10x as complicated as it was. And whatever deal made sense, you know, 10 years ago, because it's fine, because we don't really have to do anything. I mean, how many times, I don't know how much, you know, software you guys all worked with, but like, how many times have you heard, it's a simple integration, it's like two lines of code, you know? And then, no, you yeah, know, exactly. three yeah. years, three years later, you've got a team of 14 people, you know, like, you know, up all night trying to figure out why this update didn't hold. So, I mean, I don't know, there, there could be some practical stuff, but yeah. yeah. And I imagine part of the challenge is the business is a lot smaller than it used to be. Hmm. You know, when, when they, you know, this, this, this. This business, World of Warcraft in general, has just fallen off a cliff, and there's not much else like, like driving it. So, trying to pull more economics out for Activision is going to be a tough sell if the revenue is like a quarter of what it was like just five years ago. You know. So, anyway, I don't know. The, I don't know the ins and outs of what's going on. I just know it had to be a, like kind of a pissing match between the two companies. And but that's, we'll see. We'll see that version of the right. story. Fits. If I'm right, most like. I was just going to say that version of the story fits into the way you were. I think it was you, you talking about. Uh, two dots or like whatever they're called, uh, the two dot stuff in, in the Zynga story. I mean, like when things start to change or become unstable, you've got to start like figuring out what things work, what don't, what is the economics right, not right, and how do I cut it? So, I mean, um, you know, there, it, it could be a complete non-ego situation, just a purely like, a, you know, money and numbers situation. Yeah, maybe, maybe. The, uh, I think the post-acquisition, they were moving two dots from New York somewhere else. That yeah, yeah, you said that, yeah. 
Yeah. yeah, well, they, they they consolidated all the the mobile portfolio rights. I mean, they didn't need all these big expensive studios. Like a, a studio to operate a studio in New York is very expensive, New York City, mm-hmm. and it was a very large studio, right? And I think it was like, well, we bought this game for the, or we bought this company for the game and the very long lifetime of this game, and not necessarily for the studio <laughs> to produce many new games over some time frames. That made that made a lot of sense, but I don't know if that that same kind of like logic would be applicable here. Um, but I maybe, just mean I like know. metrics, like you're like, this is what it costs. Sure, this yeah. is what it costs to maintain. This is the revenue. This is what it costs to maintain. Here's the 10 things I'm going to focus on. Here's, the, you know, I mean, that's right. the, I think that's kind yeah, of right, standard. Right. So, I mean, I'm just thinking it might be less. Yeah. yeah. All right. This episode is brought to you by Data AI. Yes, they were called App Annie back in the day, but let's not talk about that. Let's talk about how Data AI is the first company to combine consumer and market data with the power of artificial intelligence. And Data AI does this to unlock unique consumer and market insight to accelerate competitive advantages across all digital channels worldwide. What we here at Deconstructor Fund really like is Data AI's Game IQ tool. It's this fantastic market and competitive intelligence tool for mobile gaming that allows publishers to really get to the feature level of a game without doing the full-on deconstructing first. Using this tool, your team can quickly tie features to performance KPIs, which will help you make difficult roadmap decisions. It's also a great tool to identify hidden growth opportunities as you can analyze games on a scale. As you well know, there are hundreds of thousands of gaming apps in the App Store and thousands of new mobile games released each month. And while we don't want you to stop reading and listening to Deconstructor Fun, the fact is we can't cover it all. With Data AI, and especially their Game IQ tool, you'll be able to efficiently determine what features provide a lift, make roadmap decisions based on accurately modeled expected outcomes, discover how competitors lifted performance through feature releases, benchmark performance against your competitors, focus with confidence on the highest potential genre for a new game release. We here at Deconstructor Fun are huge fans of Data AI, so what are you waiting for? Go to Data AI and try the service for free. In today's global gaming marketplace, your players want to pay how they want, when they want, and where they want. Accepting localized forms of payments and keeping up with what's trending is key to growing your gaming business and to finding new untapped markets. That's where Exola Payments comes in. With just one simple integration, you'll be connected to over 700 localized preferred payment methods on a global scale, including bank cards, digital wallets, mobile payments, cash kiosks, gift cards, special offers, and more. Plus, with Exola acting as your merchant of record, they assume the risk of cost of complex VATs, sales taxes, laws, and regulations. Leave every transaction to the experts while you focus on retaining and expanding your audience. You can get started today. Just head over to exola.pro slash paystation or look for the link in the description of this episode. Exola Payments, it's what your gaming business needs to succeed. I'm not going to go down the rabbit hole of talking about how much value has been destroyed by the Zing acquisition because I think I've already covered that. But holy crap, <laughs> just just look at the stock. Okay, moving on. All right, Candy Crush. Candy. Ten years of Candy Crush, and I know this is your article, but I'm going to do the intro, and because because this is my no, I'm actually I'll, I'll do it in a, in a minute. Um, Ten years of Candy Crush. There was a great article. Where was this in Game Industry about Biz about the history of Candy Crush? So we brought Mr. David. To, who is an expert? Uh, who? How long were you at, at King? I think a little under nine Forever, years. Forever, right? A little under nine years, yeah. 
Oh my Enough. lord! Like a lifetime. Yeah. Right. It was. All right. Go ahead, Laura. Sorry. <laughs> um, I'll do. I'll do a quick summary, and then we'll. Uh, David, you'll take the floor. So, Candy Crush launched uh, on mobile ten years ago this month. Um, uh, it was already live on Facebook. Uh, fast forward a decade, Candy Crush is one of the most played games in the world, still generating growth year after year after year. In addition to the wealth of content updates, social media festivities, and in-game events, uh, the Swedish company flew a dozen journalists to Stockholm for a few days to learn more about King and the science behind Candy Crush's success. A um, few comments on this. The, the article is basically a summary of you know, Candy Crush's success, some of the people that work on the team, uh, what they what their take in on what their take of why it was successful, and this is why uh, we wanted to bring on uh, Nelson. Um, a few initial comments. King just they are great at expanding their reach beyond UA. They're they've been leaning into brand collaborations and big impossible to ignore ad integrations within movies, songs everywhere, almost from the beginning. Um, it's one of the few companies that has continually invested in their brand and they haven't been as affected by IDFA. I took a quick I, I took a quick walk down memory lane by going into Sensor Tower just to look at the year year over year growth. Um, 2021 was Candy Crush's strongest year, according to Sensor Tower, and that's when the game was nine years old. That is, I mean, by, by global gaming standards, that's an old game. Um, aside from 2015, which almost looks like a data error, um, again, no idea if it is, it's all Sensor Tower, and 2020, which showed a very small decline, the game has grown every year. That is incredibly impressive. And I think there's, I put... Two, two things that the article mentions as to why it's successful. And one talks about timing, and the second talks about they had some great people working there. And again, Dave Nelson, I think, was one of those people. Um, for for timing, they, they talk about moving to mobile at the right time. It was a major part of the success. And I know just from... Um, Kind of, from people I used to work with there, they do feel that they, they moved to mobile at the right time. Um, but I also think that I, I took a look and I, I thought, well, if, if it's just timing, then all of the games that released around the same time should also be as successful. And it, I think that, and, it, and they're not. So I took a quick peek to see what other games launched around November, 2013 on mobile. And there were a couple. So there was uh, Criminal Case, Pet Rescue Saga, The Secret Society, Mystery, Hidden Object. And they didn't see the same levels of success as Candy. And, that, and so I think that timing is, it's one part of it, but it's also having the right product um, and making the right decisions post-launch. That, that goes, that, I think that's, that's absolutely key and, and sets King apart. Um, sorry, Lord, yeah. just to, sorry, sorry to interrupt, but uh, Candy Crush launched in- it's 12, 2012. 12. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Uh, my, my mistake. Sorry. I yeah. Typed and in. Uh, so, no, I, I know that because I always talk about the 2012 cohort, which is Candy Crush, uh, Clash of Clans Clash, and yeah. uh, and Mobile Strike. So there, there was like that was like the year for like the big long lasting franchise mobile game. Sorry. Sorry to interrupt. I just, no, that's, uh, that's a great color because I looked at I looked at casual. I, I wanted to say I was looking more at like the what casual games were live at that point. I didn't look actually at midcore. I was looking at why haven't there been as any other big puzzle games for um, that launched as, as well. But thank you, you're right. I, I mistyped in here. It was, it was November 2012. Um, and now, what the other part? Uh, the other part I want to make was um, they have they had great people, and I, I I'm a little bit biased. I, I mean, I worked there as well. They had really great people at, at King, so. 
Dave, you want to jump in? Yes, sure. I mean, so first of all, I don't think I ever worked in Candy Crush. I worked in the in the organization. Uh, I worked at King and I worked with people in Candy Crush, but I never worked in Candy Crush. But I mean, I, I think there's a couple of reflections from uh, from having like a relatively inside seat, being able to see things. Uh, I think a lot of people don't realize that these kind of games don't just come out of nowhere. I think it'd be interesting to hear what your guys' take is on this also, Eric, Eric, and Laura, yours also. But I mean, like if you look at Playrix, like Playrix just blows up and all of a sudden, you know, they've got these huge games. They didn't just blow up. They've been making hidden object games and casual games for years. I mean, they're also, I think, from, you know, 2004 or something like that. Um, Kings also from 2003 and had been making games for years. So Candy Crush didn't just come out of nowhere. It came from like a ton of work in the area. And I think that's probably one of the, um, one of the things that's kind of easy to miss is there's like a real dedication to understanding the players, understand people, why they play these games and thousands and thousands of tries on goal to get something that was this sticky, um, and this exciting, like, and work this well. So, I mean, that's, that's how you, how you get there. It's, it's not a lot of luck as it is iteration and, uh, keeping your, you know, uh, keeping your eye on the ball. But I mean, I think also already in 2013, King was incredibly strong, uh, analytically, very strong on, uh, looking at outcomes and learning from them and trying to figure out what people actually liked on delivering content and figuring out, like, I mean, what is it that people are looking for and how can we give them more of it uh, and continued with it. And I think also King was pretty early with uh, managing UA efficiently. I mean, I, I think operational skills are, I mean, super, you probably, you can probably talk a lot more about this, but a lot of people I think don't realize the level of detail and how good you can get at being uh, strong operationally on UA and making sure that you're not overspending, you're spending the right people and it's structured. So I think that those kind of like really core, you know, iteration, doing a lot of stuff, having used puzzle games for years, focusing on delivering great content to, to users, um, to players, and being very structured analytically uh, are some of the important components. And then I think it, what people don't realize back then too is it was like a complete team effort. I mean, the Candy Crush team was making stuff and making decisions themselves. And it's still very much like that as far as I know. I haven't been in the company now for a while, but teams are really involved and making calls and trying to figure out what it is that they can make uh, for players that players are going to love. So I think uh, that's probably the core driver of a lot of this, uh, a lot of this work. I don't know. From, from my perspective, there's like different histories of, of King. Um, there was King before they went public there, there was King on Facebook, right? That was like the first kind of where they got some visibility. And so they have a long history of making these fucking puzzle games. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, so you go from Facebook, then you go for, to mobile, and I think they moved to mobile really, really fast, right? I think that that was one of the big things that they did. That you know, companies even like Zynga was fell behind, you know, and others just completely got destroyed because of the transition to mobile and how Facebook screwed over the whole ecosystem. Yeah. Um, so they made that move really fast. Uh, they were the first movers, and they they were brilliant at UA for puzzle games. Mm. Um, but then, like once they went public, they just couldn't grow anymore. Right. So, it, I mean, they were growing, but not growing enough to really get people excited. The stock was trading at like six times EBIT, which yeah, exactly. is a very low, low price. Right. <laughs> and so when 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 Activision did that deal and bought them, it was fucking genius. You know, yeah. Bobby just bought something for six times earnings and then did the you know multiple arbitrage to like 20 times earnings from where, where, where Activision was trading. And then they became a bigger part of, the, of, 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 of that company. Um, and then from there. 
uh, they kept growing very slowly, right? It was a very, very slow crawl. And then LiveOps kicked in. Mm -hmm. And this was the next iteration of King, in my opinion, is that they started to really push increasing the frequency of levels and, and, and better live ops, better customer like attention and, and all the analytics I think you were talking about earlier. And then they like went up 40% in revenue for Candy Crush uh, just almost overnight. It was like crazy, right? And then the last era I think of this is, is the advertising piece. So they finally integrated advertising into Candy right. Crush and now they've seen another level of growth. Right. And so this has been this like long curve of really successful pivots and moves within the industry based upon what was going on. And I credit them 100 percent. The one thing that drives me insane about King is that they never made anything but puzzle games. Mm -hmm. Right. They had all this money, all these operating cash flow, all the success, but none of that translated to anything but puzzle games. And, and the one anecdote I always tell about King is that I was at TDC one time and I was talking to one of these engineers. Very, very, very smart guy, clearly smarter than me. And I, I was talking to him and I said, um, why is it that you guys can't make anything besides fucking puzzle games? Why isn't that you just go try, get other teams to build stuff? And he turned to me and he said, you know, our other games are different than Candy Crush. You know, like, uh, I, I, I'm, I'm totally forgetting the name of the other games. Give me one, David. Farm Any Heroes, game. Pet Rescue. Yeah. yeah, Farm Heroes, Pest Rescue. Yeah. That's a completely different game yeah. than Candy Crush. What are you talking about? And I looked at it. I'm like, are you out of your mind? Yeah. Right? I, 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 how, how much, how much? So, so, so there's a very distinct thing about this. Is that how much are you drinking the Kool Aid that someone as smart as you can actually believe that that is a different game than Candy Crush and and fundamentally believe it? That's like religion type shit, right? Where it's like just absolute blind faith that your management's telling you that these are different games, different genres, right? They're not different genres, right? It's ridiculous, right? And so once I heard that, and this was ages ago, I knew they would never make a game besides Candy Crush. And that's basically what happened. So my question to you, Mr. David, mm -hmm. which I think you are actually responsible for some of the new, uh, the, the, the attempts at, at different genres. Why is it that, that out of all the success that they've had with Live Ops and all of the great moves they've made with Puzzle games. Why is it that they couldn't make anything but puzzle games? Okay, I never, I never was involved in any new game stuff. I did, I did mostly the work that you're talking oh, about about sorry. working out how to continue getting content in for the live games. Quick, quick comment on that. Also, I mean, it's easy to forget, but if you go back to 2013, I mean, uh, Eric, you must have been around this kind of stuff. Also, like people assumed these games would die. Like no model, no model, anybody, no one, no one had a model that showed Candy Crush bigger in any year, you know, yeah. right? e ever. So, I mean, it was really a big deal that, that, I mean, and I think this is also one of the things that was, I mean, I think the, the Activision buying Candy Crush, it kind of reminds me uh, just like, any, like, you know, softly of, I mean, I don't know this story well enough, so I'm probably going to make a fool of myself or whatever, but the um, uh, uh, Buffett buying American Express, like American Express did something wrong, right? You probably know this better. And like the Wall Street was all pissed off at them and there was some sort of like issue or something. And then they invested heavily in it, right? And it was because they did some sort of, him and Munger did some sort of thing on like, turns out Main Street doesn't give a shit. Wall Street cares about what they did and they've lowered the stock and they pulled money out of it, but like Main Street doesn't, so they bought big in it, something like that. Right? Check me and like make fun of me for that. But I think that a lot of people thought that there's no way that, can, that, that King's going to make another Candy Crush. And they undervalued what the value of Candy Crush was. And I think that the company did it too. 
I mean, I think we did it. We didn't realize how big it could be and how much you could invest in it. And this kind of gets back to my previous com- I mean, comment about like what was going on in Zing and stuff. When you've got things on the table, you're trying to figure out where do we put our, I mean, where do we put our efforts? Where's the best return for it? Um, and I think that there's two main things in it. One, over the years, you kept realizing how much can, how great an asset Candy Crush was and how many players loved it and how they weren't going anywhere and we could give them so much more. That's one. I think the other part is creating what I said in the beginning. The reason Candy Crush is so great is is because there's years of iteration and work on it. That's required to make a breakthrough game that's going to matter. So you you can't just be like, I mean, no company is going to be like, I mean, this is also, I think I heard you guys ranting about some of the, you know, other, I mean, I don't know, I won't take any specific examples, but like if you've been really great at making RPGs and you decide I'm going to make a puzzle game because it's easy, like how hard can that be? You're wrong. You're, you're just wrong. It's you're just wrong. You know, it's hard. And so I think that that's one of the th- you need to have like you need to have dedication. You need to have like skin in the game. The ropes need to be cut. You need to be at sea in a boat and you're screwed. Otherwise, you know, and that's also I mean, that gets back to my question about Netflix and what's going to happen with, you know, games. there. So that's my I don't know, reflection on it. I think so just about the, the, the not diversifying away from puzzle. They tried through M&A, right? So they acquired Nonstop Games. Uh, right. That's Henrik Sorenin's company. They acquired Z2. Yep. They tried to to buy their way into other genres and they just shut all those studios down. It just never worked. I, and part of that is, I think part of that is, um, you know, so a couple things. things. Like one is it's just very difficult when the culture, and I've talked about this before uh, with M&A, like in doing integrations, when the culture, the analytics, the reporting, when it's all built around puzzle or it's all built around um you know social casino or whatever it it's not even just you know even through MA it's tough to integrate that and to actually like give it the give it the agency and give, give these projects like the the um the space to flourish because it's like all of your infrastructure is built around interpreting the metrics and uh doing the product yeah. development feature changes uh for puzzle games or whatever whatever your core focus is and i think you know in both of those cases like you know, the body rejected the uh, the transplanted limb or whatever. It just didn't work because the whole organization. I think another piece of it is like it's very much like a European company, right? I mean, the headquarters uh, or I think like the actual registered headquarters is like in Ireland or Luxembourg or like some tax haven. But, you know, the, the kind of HQ where, um, you know, the execs sat was London. And then you've got the, the, the primary production studio in Stockholm. I mean, like, and it's just tough. Most of, to, most of the founders are yeah. Stockholm Candies in Stockholm, and then the CEO and the and the CMO and CEO was in London. So yeah, split between right. London and Stockholm. It's it's yeah. So it's it's just I think it's really tough to like, especially like this like Swedish style of working. It's it's very mm-hmm. difficult. I think for like alternative styles of working to like adapt to that, and I also think it's very difficult for those two things to like coexist. Um, but to your point about UA, I mean, I think that's one thing that's generally glossed over. But but King has a fantastic UA team, and they always have for a long time. That was like they were one of the early companies to adopt like a sort of UA f- uh, first growth strategy. And what was weird was, you know, when they just appointed this new CMO, it was a pure brand person, right? And you've seen that play out. I mean, they did the the drone show in New York City. It's like, what are you talking about? Why would you do that? Uh, that just seems like a complete you know, misfire. I mean, I, I don't even think they had any sort of like mechanic for measuring the impact of that, but, 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 but King was very, very early with like, 
building a, a big UA team, having all the UA infrastructure and trusting UA as like the growth mechanism. One thing I've got to now uh, uh, correct myself. So I corrected Laura um, and I, I said something incorrect when I corrected Laura. So I said that uh, Mobile Strike was a 2012 game. I meant Game of War. Yeah, Game of War. Game Mobile of War. Strike was, yeah. Mobile Strike, like, game of War was not a 2012 game. Mobile uh, Game of War was 2013. But I, when I talk about the 2012 cohort, I'm always talking about Clash of Clans, Candy Crush. Sorry for the confusion. I'm correcting myself, having corrected Laura incorrectly. <laughs> You're old and it's ancient history, right? What else can happen, right? Yeah, fair um, enough. I, I'm, I'm not that the, old. The only... All right. Well, you look old. Uh, the, hey. the point I, I mean, the, I've never the, seen you before. You look I mean, really old. Like, you look really old. <laughs> the point we've always, I've always made is that, like, the metrics become so good for something like Candy Crush where you're hitting all these crazy margin targets <laughs> and your return on ad spend is like insane, right? And so these create these metrics that are absolutely impossible to replicate across any other genre, right, that you're trying to get into. So when you acquire Z2 Live and they're building this, you know, crazy strategy game and they're coming back with metrics of like 10% margins in the first year, they're like, dude. Why are we investing any money in UA for something, a game coming out of that studio when we could invest the same amount of money and make like 6X what we're making, you know, yeah. or something like that? You know, that's the biggest problem. It's like the innovator's dilemma of the financial part is like you just can't justify, you know, investment when you can make so much more money in your, your cash cow. And so that creates like a, a real hindrance to innovation and, and moving into different genres so yeah and in lots um, of ways right i mean that's like got that, that holds you back i mean google wave you know i mean you, you don't even need to be in games you can be in just like google wave it's a, okay that could be right. fun but there's right. no way you're ever going to get the legs or the time to figure it out you're never going to be desperate enough to try to figure it out because you're working at this great huge company with all the resources in the world you know so yeah yeah yeah. And so what did they do? So what King did was they just doubled down, right? They just kept making the same fucking game over and over again. And that created less. Re Sorry, I forgot about this part. They it, Every game was doing worse than the last, right? And then ultimately what they did was they just completely almost fully invested in Candy Crush alone, right? And then and then and then kept the other games alive as as uh, as people continue Mac optimized spend around Candy Crush. They moved on to the second game, right? Type thing. And then we're, they were. Sorry, this is a more of a longer conversation, which I wasn't prepared for. But nonetheless, it's like they just basically tripled, doubled, quadrupled down on Candy Crush, and that's that. That is their business, you know. So, so and it's and it, it's worked well, and they've done a really good job of managing that franchise. Um, so, David, so after all this time with King, what are you doing now? Like, what's the what's the uh, ambition, the goal, the drive? I mean, I, we spoke at, I forgot, we spoke at, um, we spoke at uh, uh, Istanbul, right? Yeah, no, 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 in uh, Cologne, Cologne, on some roof, on Cologne, a beach right, roof right. or something. Okay. Laura smuggled right, me right, in right, to, right, right. Beach roof. to your party. <laughs> like literally smuggled me in. She was like, don't look at him and then snuck me around or whatever. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, we spoke then, we spoke then. No, but we're going to start a games company and uh, it's going to be, it's, I think it's a super fun time to start because like, you know, every it was really easy just a little while ago, and now mostly because all the investors are listening to you, Chris, like saying that you know mobile's dead. Only because everyone, you know, it's all you. <laughs> I am the tail wagging the dog, dude. No one listens to me, dude. I just listen to other people and repeat what they say, dude. 
I think mobile gaming is gonna. I think it's time for a second, uh, a second round. I think a lot of things look exactly the same, and uh, there's a lot of like moving features that. I mean, a lot of the features that we we made during King Times have just moving around between the games. You can almost mm-hmm. take them apart like artifacts and be like, "This came from here." I think I could write a Wikipedia page on like the the heritage of each you know feature and part and where it came from. So, I think it'd be really interesting to do something really radically different. So that's what we're gonna do. We're starting with mobile puzzle. And we're going to do something very, very radically different. I can't talk about it much well, now, finishing finishing some things. And then, uh, you know, waiting to sign things to make it real life instead of just, you know, imaginary. It's coming up. When you go, to, when you go to raise money, talk to me first. Okay. okay. I'll call you after this then. <laughs> All right. Well, yeah, I, I feel like that means that, that response means you've already talked to other people, which I'm deeply disappointed about. But <laughs> a deal, a, a deal is born right on the I, podcast. Uh, right? To close the deal on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Let's do it. If you type in the chat, we'll uh, sort this out. But I, but I think it's I think it's going to be an exciting time because I mean I think there's a, so this is kind of what I was trying to get into before also, which I would love to hear you guys dig into on a podcast. Maybe bring in some more. You know, bring in some people that are making companies or working on creative problems in companies now. But like, there is a there is a battle going on right now. I think about how creative people are going to be working in this space. Like, are they going to be? There's um, there's some companies that are like, you set up your studio, you have total creative freedom, and all I'm going to do is operate it. You know, I'll do all the ops for you. I'll do all the, you know, and and so there's a whole diff- there's a whole spectrum of um, different kind of offerings coming up that I think are uh, based on the fact that people are kind of arguing about what's the right creative element, what create, you know, way of working creatively to create a great uh, mobile game. And I think it's fascinating. I mean, I think that's what you're going to run at Netflix. Like, is it, is it, and is it going to end up like LA where, you know, writing, you know, you, if these writers, you know, you come together and you start writing on a low end show and then you build your way up, or is it going to be something different? And I think it's probably gonna be something different, but I think there's a, a battle for the creative heart of games going on. Hmm. Yeah. All right. We'll, we'll look into that. Um, I, 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 that's why I said at Google though. I said, I think, I think it's a really interesting time to be in a mobile game developer. Cause I think that the seas have changed. Right. And so like what's successful going forward is not going to be what was successful in the past. And so that creates real unique opportunities for creatives and, and people in the business that know how to monetize and that have been doing this before is to figure out way, different ways of making that work. So yeah. Yeah, I think I don't disagree with you. I just think it's going to be if you're going down the same road as we've been going for the last 10 years, then you're not going to be successful. It's going to be much, much harder to be successful. So uh, that's when innovators can thrive, I suppose. All right. I have to actually get going because I have a washer dryer coming (laughs) knocking on my door right now. But uh, thanks for coming on, David. Uh, Thanks for having me. And and maybe we'll bring you back on for, um, you know, this type of discussion. going forward I, actually i might do we'll do an interview podcast with you david anytime get, anytime get i'm in, at your service get in the weeds <laughs> yeah let's get in the weeds that sounds great all right thank, thanks for coming yep, thanks a lot all right okay bye guys bye laura bye. bye laura you did it you made it to the end of the episode as a fan of the show it would help us out if you subscribe and leave us a review on the podcast service of your choice more importantly are you a member of the deconstructor fund slack group if you have five years or more of games industry experience, go to deconstructoroffun.com slash slack and apply to join. Join the games industry's best professional community filled with peers always willing to lend a hand. Or subscribe to our newsletter to get all the latest insights from the Deconstructor of Fun content creators. Thanks for listening. <laughs>